This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to a very special episode, episode 41 of Pawn Order. Peter and I are recording this live from the Canadian Animal Law Student Conference. Wow. We are we are very excited uh, to be here. It's really been incredible just to get here. Today is obviously the student conference, and it's been, um, what people don't know is there's another historical milestone that happened today. Camille pronounced Schulich correctly. So congratulations, <laughs> congratulations to Camille. Uh, that was like the first time she's managed to get it right. It only took me a year. <laughs> yes, we're very proud of Camille over at the Pawn Order Home Office. This is really a, a thrill. It's a thrill both to be here in Halifax. Um, it's a thrill to be back with my co-host, because uh, we don't get to do the live ones. Our last one was live from the Northwest Territories. And um, we're just excited to be part of this conference. Camille, what does all this mean to you, this big conference day? Well, it's been a year in the making. Uh, it's, it's a pretty big first in Canada. And what's really been a year of firsts? The first animal law conference, uh, the first time that we have passed any serious new animal protection legislation at the federal level since the 1800s. So I think we're really well poised to make pretty huge gains in the years ahead. And I'm excited to talk about all the momentum we've made so far at this conference and keep the momentum going. Yeah, I'm excited too about all those things. And of course, meeting all these wonderful people. There's nothing that inspires me more than uh, meeting uh, young students who are excited to make change in this country, because that's what I think is the, the future of this movement. In fact, Earlier today, I was talking about a young student who inspired me. Uh, I spoke about it at some length. I poured my heart out. I said nice things to my co-host because I am accused of being mean to you. And I, I went at length. I'm not going to repeat everything I said. I just wanted to point out that when I was doing that, that was the moment my esteemed co-host, Camille Lauchuk, chose to take a break from the conference. She literally <laughs> left the room for the 10 minutes in which I was speaking nicely about her. So she will never hear it. And that is just fine with me. I mean, I don't actually believe this happened. I mean, <laughs> Maybe one of you can vouch for it, but I, I, I'm doubtful. Anyway, I was actually doing my job. I was doing a media interview. It's work, work, work. Yeah. Work, work, work. You know, you, you've heard this before. It's work, work, work with Camille. In fact, her latest work, work, work was, you know, the usual Camille gallivanting around. This time it was New Zealand. Camille was gallivanting around New Zealand for two weeks, pretending it was a work trip. Isn't that what happened, Camille? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I actually did some work. I went to the... Um, New Zealand Animal Law Association Conference, which was fantastic. I was excited to be there because some of you may have heard already about a little bit about the fact that New Zealand has a much better animal protection structure than Canada and most other places in the world. Uh, but of course, suffers from many of the same other problems, especially with enforcement that we do. So it was fun to learn a little bit and get back to the country where you spent many of your formative animal law years. That's correct, my formative animal law years. You met up 
with uh, one of my best friends and the person who really got me on this road in the first place. And the truth is, we all need someone to get us on this road. It's, uh, it's, it's very rare that someone is like you, Camille, who's just inspired intrinsically. Um, I was sort of uh, doing other things, and a good friend of mine, uh, we'll give her a shout out, is Deirdre Bork, who I have known for 20 years now. And she was uh, an absolute passionate animal rights activist who went to law school. So sort of Camille before Camille. Um, she didn't go to law school for any purpose other than to advance her animal rights activism. And that was just an incredible thing. And she uh, she came to see me one day, and uh, we hit it off. And uh, I, I've been unable to get out of this movement ever since. It's been a terrible uh, drain on my time ever since then. But that's the way it is. And I, I'm so glad that Camille had a chance to meet with her especially because she's really quite an inspiring person. And now it's in New Zealand. It's gone from like you and Deirdre to over 100 people yeah, at the uh, conference. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it is. The, the growth of these things is really quite unbelievable. And, uh, you know, just seeing what's going on here, that we have a packed conference in Canada, is just, uh, I mean, I remember when an animal rights conference was a couple of people sitting around a, a, um, a cafe, you know, trying to find if the, if, the, if the cafe had soy milk so we could actually <laughs> drink something. Like, that's essentially what a vegan conference or an animal rights conference was back in the day. And now here we are, and we're doing a live episode of Pawn Order in front of, like, a, a room full of people. It's pretty pretty unbelievable. Yeah, the conference that sold out two months before it began, so not bad. Yes, so we have a very special episode of Pawn Order today. We are doing something we have not done. We're doing like a, an homage. We're going, harking back, excuse me, to our second episode ever. Uh, was it second or third? Third. third? third episode. I apologize. Our second episode was Federalism. Our third episode was a live Q&A that we did in my animal law class. That was a year, a year and a half ago, and uh, Camille came to visit, and we did a live Q&A, and we answered questions from students, and we're going to do that again today. We're going to take some questions from students, and then um, we are going to do uh, something very special, which even Camille doesn't know about. This is a surprise that I have planned, which is going to involve audience participation, and it's going to involve Camille participation. She doesn't know that yet, but this is going to be great. And then we are going to finish with everybody's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Everybody's favorite part of the show. By the way, just an interesting fact. The first time we said that, I have to look at that. I actually um, looked this up. That was episode four, Camille. The first time we ever said it was everybody's favorite part of the show was episode four. So that's a long, long time ago. All right. So we are very excited to do all that. We've caught up a little bit. Um, I will just say one thing because we're not talking too much about news, but you didn't ask what I've been up to, Camille. Um, one of the things, one of the things that I did want to relay because I think it's important that I have been up to really excitedly is that I have been working with uh, the lawyers for. Um, for Lucy's case out in Edmonton, which everybody should be aware of, and is a very important case where the lawyers uh, working with Zuchek um, are trying to seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, which I think would be a, a wonderful thing to really look at issues of animal standing and uh, look at the powers of zoos over animals. And uh, I, I've been very fortunate to be working with the lawyers to polish up the submissions, which have been filed today. So as a result, um, th those are, the, in case you're wondering, those are the reply submissions. Missions. So essentially, uh, they filed leave to appeal a couple of months ago. The city of Edmonton Zoo and um, and um, the other respondent, um, the uh, city of Edmonton Zoo and C city of Edmonton and the zoo <laughs> are the two respondents. And they wrote back essentially saying this is not a case that merits the attention of the Supreme Court and explained why. And then Zuchek gets to write reply submissions, which I was helping with. And uh, we're really pleased about that. Animal Justice got to contribute some comments. And uh, so that will be filed with the judges tomorrow. 
tomorrow. So essentially that means it goes to the judges tomorrow and we should know within a month or two whether or not leave will be granted. So that's a very exciting thing that I got to work on. So yeah, really, really good stuff. Cool. Well, congratulations. It's good to hear what you're up to. I didn't really care. I actually, I actually already knew that. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Well, we, are, we have an esteemed audience. We have uh, our producer, Shannon Milling. There she is. Shannon is with us today. Uh, the whole, in fact, I think I can say just about the whole animal justice team is here. I can see Kim Carroll, who's smiling at me, getting ready to heckle any moment. Um, yeah, so we, we have the animal justice team here. We're really excited to have everybody here. And we have our student group here with questions. And our, our producer, uh, Shannon Milling, is going to be roving around with another microphone. Keep in mind that microphone will not amplify your voice. It's just to record your voice, so you don't need to speak extra loud. Um, we can hear you just so that you're recorded, and then we can integrate your questions in with the answers. So feel free to hit us up. You can ask us about any part of the show. You can ask us about animal law questions. You can ask how do Camille and I really get along. Things like that. Anything that's, that's bothering you, please put your hands up and Shannon will come and get you. Yes, I, it sort of relates to what you were saying, Peter, uh, how many people actually listen to uh, the show. And I'm just wondering, uh, do we actually know that or could we know that? And I think you know, it's really valuable discussion and valuable information, um, and it's great for all of us because we're already converted, but, you know, how could we leverage it further to address audiences who, you know, who we would like to, to include? So the, the person who can answer the first part of the question is holding the microphone. So Shannon knows more. I have a few thoughts about the second part. Oh, sorry. Well, I, I do have a, an inkling into the first part of the question. Our listens range anywhere from five or six hundred listeners for some episodes up to three to five thousand for other ones. Uh, it seems to be that the longer an episode has been online, the more people listen to it. And oftentimes, if you're, I think, new to a podcast, you'll start at episode one. Uh, the information is to some extent timely, but a lot of it is just sort of basic information that stays relevant for a long time. So I think people start at the beginning and kind of work their way through. So I have a lot of thoughts on the second part of the show. Camille and I get into discussion. And unfortunately, you have to understand what animal justice is. Camille already adverted to this in her opening stage. I think animal justice has grown leaps and bounds and is an incredible organization. And I'm thrilled with everything we're doing. But to say that we are stretched thin is like the understatement of the century. I, I'm stretched thin myself. I barely have time to do things, and so does Camille. And we, we have occasionally scheduled talks to think about how do we leverage pawn order? How do we get it more out there? That is something that I'm very interested in, and we have a talk scheduled on it because I literally raised it with Camille last night. So I do think we need to do more, but I will say mea culpa, and this is not to blame Camille or Shannon, I take as much blame for anything. I don't think we've done enough, because I do think we're, we're putting together a pretty good product that explains issues of importance, and I think when people listen to it, they like it. So the question is how to get it more out there to people who aren't listening to it, who aren't necessarily converted, and, and I think we could do more on that score. I think you're absolutely right. That is something I really want to address in the new year. And Camille wants to speak about this, and then so does Shannon. Well, I, I will just say one thing is that <clears throat> numbers are one thing, but the types of people listening, it's another aspect of it. And we've heard from various uh, individuals about judges listening, about heads of judicial councils, about people who are members of parliament listening to it. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunately one of those things where we can't really get data on it and understand exactly who checks it out. But I have anecdotal information that we're getting some quality, powerful people tuning in. Also, I just want to add that we recently joined a new network called the iRoar Podcast Network. Um, it's only We've only been with them for about a couple of weeks, but uh, it's basically a network that's been created to connect podcasts uh, that advocate for animals. So 
Our Hen House is on it. The Animal Law Podcast in the States is on it. Uh, there's a few others, but basically it's a website where all these podcasts are put together and people can go there and check them all out. So now we're all kind of promoting each other. And that's something that's very new, but I expect our numbers, numbers will continue to grow because of that connection as well. Hi, so my name's Crystal Ann, and I'm a third-year law student at the University of Ottawa. Um, I just want to thank you for having us on this special episode. I love listening to the podcast on my way to school. Um, so my question is... Politics and law really go hand in hand. So with the upcoming election, I was just wondering if you could give some advice to people in the room um, who care about animal law issues. <clears throat> this is one of my hobby horses, oh, is the, uh, the absolute need that we have as a society and as people who care about animals to elect animal-friendly politicians. So I'm thankful for that question, Crystal Ann, because I think it's uh, the most timely thing we can be considering right now. So the federal election is on October 21st. This podcast will be out by then. Uh, you should be able to find our endorsements of specific candidates from all parties at humanevoters.ca. Uh, the reason we endorse people is because we find animal-friendly candidates from the Liberals, the Conservatives, the Greens, the NDP. We've got a block candidate on there. And we want to build the cadre of animal-friendly people in Parliament who are willing to go out and pass legislation. We heard a little bit earlier today about the fight to pass Bill S-203, which outlawed whale and dolphin captivity. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that that never would have passed without some real key champions for animals in Parliament. So people like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith from the Liberal Party, people like Finn Donnelly from the NDP, Elizabeth May from the Greens, who was the uh, House sponsor, <clears throat> of the bill, Michelle Rempel from the Conservatives. These people all put their necks on the line and really stuck themselves out there to move this legislation along. And it's just impossible to get something through unless you've got those members of parliament advocating for you. So I really urge people to not only vote for animal-friendly candidates, but uh, I think even more importantly, volunteer for them. Show up at their campaign office, go knock on doors with them for an evening or an afternoon. Show them that animal-friendly people will support animal-friendly candidates. They will come to expect our support and understand that they need to be good on the issues if they want to uh, benefit from it. It really does make a huge difference. And politicians, I can tell, I can tell you, uh, remember the people who helped them get into office. They're more likely to take a meeting with you later and to do things that are in line with your policy goals. So I don't disagree, but this is episode 41, and I've heard that speech 41 times. So it's just <laughs> after a while, the horse hooves have to start running, and Camille gets on her hobby horse to talk about politicians. So yeah, she's rolling her eyes, if you can't see. That's part of the podcast that really only comes to life when we're live together. Hi, uh, I'm Kira. I'm also third year at University of Ottawa. Um, and obviously, I would like to practice animal law. And as a law student, that's a question you're asked a lot, what area of law you want to practice. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do you answer the question that always comes back of what is animal law? If you could give like an ideal like elevator pitch answer of that question. Hmm. So um, we both sort of practice animal law, but in different ways, um, in the sense of Camille's not in the courts um, as often as I am, though I'm not in the courts that often on animal law issues either, though I do represent clients on animal issues. Um, the, the field of animal law is going to be a topic of this conference a bit later on. And to be honest, we're both sort of privileged in the sense that we both get to practice animal law. I, I get to do it because I have 
two other full-time jobs that allow me to devote time pro bono to animal issues. So I essentially, I don't earn very much from animal law issues, but I don't have to because I have the luxury of other jobs. Um, nonetheless, in terms of to answer your question of what is animal law, what I love about it is it's more, much more diverse than you'd, you'd think. It's actually like I get some really good cases and some really interesting issues. And I'm not sure that any lawyer starting out out of law school, you know, just past articling would be able to jump in and start their own firm, though a couple of people have tried including Leslie a long time ago. And of course, uh, Rebecca is now practicing animal law pretty much full time. But I am surprised by how many case opportunities I get. I get so many, I can't take them all. Um, so I actually have a little cadre in Edmonton where I forward people to. On, like I had a, a landlord tenant case came up recently where someone wanted to retain me and I was just too busy. So it was an issue, like they were essentially getting forced out with their dog. So I forwarded it to someone I knew who had taken my class and I'm now forwarding cases out. But in terms of the type of cases that I actually do um, and the type that are available. I'd say a, a large part of the practice, um, if you're doing animal law, is what I call core animal issues. So I do get some stuff like Le uh, Rebecca mentioned in the earlier day. I do get calls for custody disputes. Most of the work that I've actually done is, to be honest, is damage claims. So I have gotten to, uh, I've sued a couple of um, vets, I've sued a couple of vets and a couple of kennels. And I'm really trying to use those cases. You think, well, those are not big cases. They don't advance animal law. I totally disagree because I ask for a lot of money, and I tell those vets and kennels that I'm quite willing to go to court if they don't want my money. So I make the claim much higher than it should be, and it's actually worked out well because they usually settle for a lot more money than the client would ordinarily get. But the reason I do that is because they come back to me with, with the animals aren't worth anything, and they cite the precedent, and I say I'm quite ready to go to court to fight that out. Let's go fight out the issue of how much the animal is worth because that's an issue I want litigated. So I'm ready to go litigate if the clients are. So that's really exciting work for me. The same thing with custody of showing the interests of the animal. And then finally, there's the pro bono stuff I do, where I'm working, for example, with Zuchek or Animal Justice or other organizations trying to advance um, animal interests in a variety of ways. And those types of cases are constantly still emerging. We don't even know what they're going to be. Um, those are the types of cases in which you can get into court and do stuff like that. And finally, the other thing I do, but this won't make you any money, is I advise Edmonton um, prosecutors and police about issues involving animals, about how to actually get cruelty prosecutions done and things they can do differently going forward. So my practice is really full. I just, I, you know, I'm not taking on any law students or articling students at the moment. So, uh, well, I actually did. I mean, my colleague here, is, uh, he's been named on the show before, Zach uh, Wilson. If you can ask him what it's like to work with me, he knows. He worked with me all summer. I, you did a few animal-related things. Is that right, Zach? I can't remember. I, I think there was. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So there, there, there are, there are animal related jobs out there. They're just hard to come by. Sorry. <clears throat> that's a really long elevator pitch, but I'll try to be a little more concise. <laughs> you know, broadly speaking, you can say that animal law is any area where animals interests intersect with, with the law. Um, I sort of think of it in two, maybe three categories. One is issues that are really about human interests. Uh, there can be animal sub-interests, but I think about things like pet custody, disputes about breeding, um, just in issues where we own animals and we run into legal issues because of, because of that. Uh, but the stuff I'm more interested in is the advancement of animals' interests through the law. 
And the way I usually explain it to people is by saying, okay, what's animal law? Well, you may not know this, but animals in Canada are in an untenable, terrible legal situation. Our laws fail to match our social attitudes. We all believe that animals have value, uh, but our laws don't treat them that way. We have no national animal protection legislation in this country. There are zero regulations for farmed animal welfare at the federal or provincial level, and that's 818 million animals slaughtered, land animals slaughtered for food last year. So there's an overwhelming problem where our laws don't match our attitudes. And when I think of animal law, really at its core for me is trying to change that situation and using novel approaches to do so. Uh, and I won't get too much into the approaches. And then the third sort of subcategory, I think, is uh, advancing, using human rights to advance animal interests. And that can involve anything from uh, criminal defense work for animal advocates who run into prosecution for their activities. Uh, that can be things like filing false advertising claims based on our human right not to be misled by people selling products. Um, things like claiming that as an ethical vegan you have human rights to receive appropriate food in the workplace or in a service situation. So there's lots of ways, and I, you know, I, that's. It, it relies on human rights because we're not directly advancing animals' interests, but it ultimately does the same thing because it starts a conversation. Yeah. And the point of advancing those human rights is not really so much for the humans, but is for the animals. Yeah, I forgot. I, I do those as well through animal justice because um, animal justice helps fund my defense of animal advocates. So I'm very lucky to be able to defend animal advocates in Edmonton. Unfortunately, they have to be in Edmonton because I won't travel somewhere else. <laughs> so I had like these animal advocates got charged in like Red Deer and Calgary and you'd think that's close, but for me it's not close to go do court dates. So I'm just like, I had to refer them to try and find somebody else. If you're in Edmonton and you get charged, so I told them, you got to do the protest in Edmonton. Like that's the way it's got to be. You know, there's going to be a career panel later on where you will hear from some defense lawyers, but I always recommend that students consider that as a career option, um, if not to ultimately practice defense law and defend animal activists, but at least to get some experience early on, because the types of skills that you gain in the criminal court setting are directly applicable to the few laws we do have protecting animals, which tend to be criminal or regulatory in nature. Uh, my name is Esther Peterson, also from University of Ottawa. I'm a second year student, though. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any current plans to expand, grow uh, animal justice as an organization. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's really the uh, number one thing we want to accomplish is growing this organization and, of course, growing this movement. Uh, we did expand this year, so there are now three full-time employees at Animal Justice. There's myself. I was the first. Uh, two and a half years ago, Shannon Milling joined the team. And this summer, Caitlin Mitchell joined the team as uh, an Animal Justice staff lawyer. So she practices law full-time on behalf of animals at Animal Justice. Um, it's a little bit different for me because I do a lot of legal work, but I'm also responsible for fundraising, administration, uh, media work, many things that are public-facing and not directly legally focused. But we envision a world where we have a huge team of lawyers, a huge team of lobbyists, a huge team of communicators, uh, an unstoppable organization doing this work. The limit on that, of course, is paying for it. It's the resources that we need to afford to do that. And so that's why I spend a lot of my time working on growing the organization through uh, developing relationships with people who will support that work and expanding in that way. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly biased because I'm sort of a part of the organization because um, I'm on the board. But um, if you asked me, like I've been around this for a while and um, 
I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. And, you know, if I was transported back to 2010, I mean, I had conversations with Camille and with the, our founder, Nick Wright, as soon as I came back from New Zealand. And I was like, if, if, if there's one thing that needs to happen, we need to grow this, or exp this organization exponentially. To me, that has been the biggest development in Canadian law, not necessarily because of the impact that we've had in, in individual issues, which I think has been substantial. I'm not trying to understate what we've done. I just said, it seems to me that I, I was able to see early on what the ALDF was trying to do in the U.S., and I, I thought that their impact was significant in a lot of different directions, and it seemed to me that if Canada was ever going to get off of its collective rear ends, I'm trying to use the collective thing, then, then we needed to do this. I mean, I, I, I was coming back, I, I'm a Canadian by birth, but I was in New Zealand for 10 years, and we tried to get an organization off the ground in New Zealand that was like the ALDF, and it was just incredibly hard without funding. And it, it sort of crashed and burned when people had no more energy to get into it. And I remember coming back and speaking with people in Canada, like Leslie, this is back in the early 2000s, and I was just like, I said to Nick Wright, I was like, it's great, you founded this organization, but if this or organization doesn't supercharge, we're just not going to get anywhere. And I still think that's true. As big as we've gotten, all we've done, in my view, is set the platform for future growth. Um, when we have uh, a team of lawyers ready to take on cases, and we have a team of people who can get Camille out of doing the every single thing in the organization, no offense, Shannon, and I know other people do work, but like the everything that she's doing right now, then I'll know that we're really getting somewhere. And I think that's what needs to happen. We still need to supercharge. Honestly, if somebody said to me, like, like we have, we are, we've done great things. Like we did this at the 10 year anniversary. If you listen to the 10 year anniversary podcast, we patted ourselves on the back. We've come incredible long ways. We can fund three positions. It's amazing. We can, we can help support a conference. I'm like, but to me, like until our budget is like 10 times what it is now, we're not going to be able to make a real impact. So who's ready to step up and fund that? That's the question. It seems and, to me. and let's just keep in mind that our opponents, the industries oh that abuse God. animals that we fight against have just like astronomical resources. And I, I, I always use this number because it's one of the few times we've heard the curtain sort of peel back. But the dairy farmers of Canada, just one industry commodity group, they have a marketing budget, just marketing, not lobbying, not other stuff, just marketing of $80 million. That's it's more than 10 insane. times all of the animal rights groups in, in Canada community. combined. Yeah. And if we had our tenfold increase, we'd still be outfunded by that one thing by like 20 times. And I just I, I want to make this clear. I, I, I really do, because this segues to a point that I've wanted to make. I remember when I came back from New Zealand, it was 2011, and I decided to entertain myself by going to an NFAC conference. If you ever want to see what's really going on with animals in Canada, I urge you to go to an NFAC conference, which is the National Farm Animal Care Council conference. It looks nothing like this conference. If you really want to see where this thing is going and the way people really talk about animals, go there. Bring your own lunch because you won't be able to eat, okay? <laughs> but let me tell you, it was, in, it was incredibly instructive because what I saw is exactly what Camille's mentioned. I remember when there was a presentation by, I'm going to get the name wrong, what's that council in Ontario, Farm Something Care? That it's, that, it's, that, it's essentially that lobby group for... Food and Farm Care Council, maybe? Food and Farm Care Council of Ontario. Okay, this is just one of the myriad of lobby groups for farming industries. It was... She was incredible. I, I was like ready to bow down. I was like, her presentation was so slick and so amazing. I was sitting there with my, you know, little whatever. I wasn't presenting, of course, because why would they want anyone to present? But like, 
it was amazing to me what they were able to do. We underestimate the people who are dealing with animals in the country at our own peril. Like, make no mistake about it. The fact that they even notice us now is amazing, which will be the subject of my talk tomorrow. Like, we're getting noticed, but we are not on a playing field where we can really strike at them yet. We're just too small. And that's not to get everybody discouraged. I think we're making progress. They notice us now. That's good. Anyway, we're going to make more progress and soon hopefully have jobs for all of you. Yes, when you exactly. Finish all <laughs> Hi, I'm Samantha Skinner. I'm currently articling in downtown Toronto. And I'm wondering for the law students out there, you've already mentioned criminal law, but are there any other courses in law school that you would re recommend for law students that would lend itself well to animal law? Yeah, a lot of courses. Uh, Peter, you can probably add to this, but you know, obviously criminal law, evidence law, admin law, because anytime you want to challenge a sort of government decision, admin law comes into play. Uh, surprisingly, intellectual property law has become an area that we've had to understand and engage with because we've done substantial litigation involving aquariums attempting to uh, use intellectual property claims against animal advocates to stifle speech. Uh, constitutional law has actually been a huge area as well. Most of our recent cases at animal justice have ended up um, being ones involving human rights. So Section 7 of the Charter, Section 2B, Freedom of Expression of the Charter. And that wasn't something I expected when we started doing this work. Yeah, it goes on and on. I mean, if you, you just heard what my practice was earlier. Most of it's criminal, but uh, I'm learning a lot about civil procedure, remedies, uh, family law. It goes on and on. Like, being a well-rounded lawyer really helps. It, it, it's, it's, it's not exciting. It doesn't sound, by all means, take your animal law courses so you can get an understanding of the perspective. But I just told you, so I had a case come up. It was a contracts dispute involving animals. I kid you not. And I couldn't deal with it. I was too busy. So I just called one of my former students who'd never even taken animal law with me, but I know she has her heart in a good faith, uh, place, and you know what she's really good at? Contract law. So I sent it to her, and they're really happy with her, and she's now getting exposed to the animal issues. So I'm like, to me, this is, this is what I give as advice. You really want to do animal law. Here's like, like, because I, I became a lawyer. I had no interest in animal law, and then I just transferred my expertise to animals. I actually think that's not a bad idea. I don't think it's about, I, I, I think so many of you want to go out, we want to be an animal lawyer. Frankly, I really want you to go get an education in something else, and then bring that expertise back to animals. So if you look at everyone around, if I look at all the people in this movement who've done a lot of stuff, and I can't speak for Caitlin, because I can't remember what her background is. Apologies, Caitlin. But Camille and I both went through the criminal law route. So Camille learned a lot of stuff about criminal law. She wasn't out defending animal activists every day, though she did a few. I did laws, but, but you did, not every you day. Did, I mostly defended people who had anything from shoplifting to murder. And now, when Camille has to deal with those issues, which come up a lot, she deals with them. Sophie Gaillard is the same. Sophie Gaillard, who is the, one of the most passionate animal advocates I've ever met, and she met me in law school, and all she ever wanted to do was animals. What did she do? She went and articled with a criminal law firm for a year, got that understanding, and now she applies that to the use that she's doing. So my view is... You, we will get to you. Go learn your craft first. That's my view. And then come back. And I'm sure a lot of you are the same, but no matter what classes I took in law school, I managed to write a paper involving animal law. <laughs> There's always a way in. Camille's, Camille's paper, right, on, on animal laws and, you know, intellectual property is just phenomenal. It's fantastic. She did them all. Okay. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a first-year student at, the, at law school at University of Ottawa. I was wondering if you had any advice for students outside of the classroom on how to be an effective advocate, both within the law school and in the broader community. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the first things uh, to keep in mind is to try to build as many connections as you can uh, with other groups doing this kind of work. So whether it be through a campus animal law club, but also getting out in the community and seeing who you can volunteer with. Um, that's where you're going to, I think, you know, personally, I, I learned far more from working with different organizations as a volunteer than I really did in most of my law classes. Um, getting that practical hands-on experience is, is fantastic. And it also gives you connections that you can draw on when you're a lawyer and you want to start doing more work for people or try to find a job in that area. Um, there's a lot of different groups to, to suit a lot of different approaches. Uh, some of them do vegan advocacy and outreach. And if that's your cup of tea, you'll have no problem finding Anonymous for the Voiceless or another group like that. Um, some of them are much more involved in lobbying. And um, happily, this has been an area of growth in Canada where animal advocates are getting into uh, Parliament and making the point that we need stronger laws. And, and that's a great thing. So I'm much more selfish. Like in, in, in an ideal world, I'd want you all to work for us. Like I really would. And we've talked about this. This is, again, uh, going back to a topic that we raised earlier about the nature of where the organization is at right now. Like at, you, you guys are new enough. I don't know. There might be some third years out there. You still might remember Saldiff clubs when we were essentially all the clubs were essentially from the U.S. perspective and we had no connection to you. We only took over is probably not the wrong last. word, but whatever you want to call it, we only took them over last year. So the goal has always been to begin engaging students in projects that actually matter. That is the goal. The problem is we don't have a student coordinator full-time. Guess who our student coordinator is full-time, everybody? It's Camille, who's doing 5,000 other things. The odd gallivanting. The odd gallivanting, but she's essentially, she's doing lots of other things. But like, I can tell you, if you go back to 2015, when we were doing DLW, we were able to engage students on a project immediately. We were able to, when we were doing the DLW case, we put out calls to some of the Saldifs and we said, we need research on these things. And we actually had students working on it. We thanked them at the end of the thing. Like we, those, that's what we want to do. The problem, the reason, if you're wondering, well, why can't you do it right now? Students take time. We need to educate you at the same time. And what we found is if you just bring in students, no matter how keen they are, the time that's needed to, to, to supervise them properly so that it's a meaningful experience for everybody is high. We've all learned that in our experience. So we are getting there. I'm not sure we're getting there during the mandate of your law degree, but we will get there because I believe it's important to engage students at an early stage. But I will add one thing to that. I, I agree with all of that. And one thing you can do to make that easier for everyone is be self-directed. Be really take the, the ball and run with it by yourselves. Obviously, we're there to help guide you. But if you have an idea about a research project, uh, about um, you know potential legislation that would be interesting to look at, uh, take that and develop it into something. Have a student research day, hold an event where you all get together and sit down and research. Uh, University of Ottawa and I think UBC as well did a research-a-thon last year where you guys came up with a project idea and I think we helped out with that and you came back with a whole bunch of research on uh, various issues that were helpful to us. Or just transfer to the University of Alberta. That's a plug for my school. You can all come and work with me. Zach's getting a full-on education about animal law from year one. So there you go. Come on and see me. Or Katie, I'm just kidding. Katie at Thompson Rivers. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Luther Kadima. I'm a third year at Osgoode Hall Law School, Toronto. Um, my question to you is, I've been vegetarian for the last 20 years. 10 of those years I was vegan. And my question is, do you think in a, in a larger sense, in a political, social, whatever sense, that we've reached the critical mass as a culture, in a Canadian culture, that we're moving forward with animal rights, with veganism, that this is going to be the future? Or have we not yet reached that critical mass and there's still a 
a stumbling block or a big risk in front of us that we can fall into that hole and this whole thing falls apart. So I'm wondering, from your experience, your perspective, have we reached the critical mass where this is where we're going? Great, great question. Um, it's it's a little bit the topic of my talk tomorrow, so I'm not going to hit it uh, too much tonight. But I will say this: um, I don't I don't think we've hit a critical mass. I don't think we should kid ourselves about where we're at in terms of the uh, the percentage of of people who are into what we're doing yet. So have we hit a critical mass? In my opinion, no. We still would not be able to pass laws that would significantly impede um, the treatment of animals in a whole host of settings. However, that's the negative, have we not? The leap that we have made from where we were even 10 years ago is incredible. It's exponential. I mean, I, I don't want to give away my presentation for tomorrow, but the, you know, there's a lot of people coming around here. It's like I have pictures tomorrow of me and my daughter who has been a vegan since birth, and we are at McDonald's in Germany eating a McVegan burger. And then I have another picture where I'm taking her to Burger King. Keep in mind, my daughter has never been to McDonald's, which may not seem like a big thing to any of you. You're like, oh, I don't even like McDonald's. But as a kid, it was a big experience for me. And my daughter has never been there. And then she gets to go there, and she gets to feel like a human being eating a vegan burger that has been made for her, and she was delighted. And to me, that signals to me that there has been a real change. That's just one. I could I could give you 20 examples. Are we there? No, my God, we're not even close to there. As Leslie pointed out earlier, the numbers continue to increase. We're going in the wrong direction now, even with vegans growing. That's just the nature of the beast. Are we further along than we were 10 years ago? In my opinion, we were virtually nowhere 10 years ago. So yes, we've come a long way. I agree we've come a long way. There's some really positive, positive trends in there, and there's some really negative ones. So the positive is obviously that we're discussing Beyond Burgers. We're discussing vegan athletes. We're discussing all kinds of things about the way that we consume and use animals in society. We're passing legislation now. Uh, the downside is that we're not really making much of a practical difference for any animals. We're killing more than we ever did before. Animal justice compiles slaughter statistics in Canada. And uh, you know, just as, as recently as a few years ago, it was more like 750 million land animals killed for food. Uh, it's 818 million last year. So that's gone up by about 10% just even within the last few years. Um, a lot of that is related to the growth of people eating chicken. And you know, fishes don't even count in that analysis because their lives are measured in tons. They're not seen as individuals. They're just masses of aquatic animals. Uh, so we're seeing people like chow down on Beyond Burgers and people moving away from eating beef for climate reasons. But are they moving towards chickens? Are they moving towards fishes? Uh, in my view, that's actually you know, a lot worse from an animal rights perspective because you need to kill fewer of those tinier individuals to get the same amount of flesh. So, you know, in some respects, our attitudes are changing so rapidly, but in other respects, we're, we're moving and falling farther behind because of shifting consumption patterns, because of developing countries wanting in on what the West has enjoyed for so long and developing their agriculture industries and killing and slaughtering and eating more animals there as well. So uh, the places where I see real progress uh, and progress that's not just theoretical, not just about our attitudes, but is actually translating into meaningful legal change is animals and entertainment. That's one where uh, people's attitudes have just shifted astronomically in the last decade or so. We've seen films like Blackfish. We've seen films like The Cove. A lot of people are just questioning why we have zoos at all. And I always say that if we had to start from scratch today, nobody would dream of 
creating a zoo. We've advanced past that idea. Uh, Ringling's Brothers Circuses had to close down in the States. They first had to abandon their elephant acts because of public pressure. And then they shut down entirely and they said that the animal activists had won. They said that people's attitudes had changed and nobody wants to see that anymore. So we are making real gains there, but you know, to be pessimistic, it affects so few animals. We're yeah. talking about you know, a, a ban on whale and dolphin captivity that didn't actually change anything for any single individual in Canada. Marine land has grandfathered in possession of 50-some belugas, one orca, and five dolphins. And they are going to stay there until somebody builds a seaside sanctuary and convinces marine land to move them there. Well, that's not quite true. It does affect the future animals that are not being born into marine land captivity. So yeah, it does, least, it does, but not one single down. animal who's currently correct, alive. Correct, but there would have been more even today, as we know from the marine land thing. Anyway, I don't want to argue that with you, Camille, because I do think that's right. And the only thing I'll just add to that last point is um, I, I do think that you're right, just to put a positivistic spin on it a little bit, is that the entertainment thing is where we're making headway. And I have said this on Pawn Order before. It's like, to me, until we can get rid of chuck wagon races, it's like talking about animal production is impossible because those are such low on the legitimate purpose scale that it's really, to me, you have to get rid of those things before you can start having meaningful conversations about other stuff now before, sorry just before we go forward I just want to say this I've looked at our clock we, we only have time for one more question if we're going to do this. and there's like 50 people I wish we could go on forever well I'm going to make one more comment about that and I, I don't want to be too pessimistic because generally I'm pretty optimistic I see what we've all done in the last decade and last 20 years and it's awesome uh, I think one th area where we are poised to make real gains and it's starting to materialize and will more so in the next decades is uh replacing the use of animals with other technologies. Mm. So the biggest one about you know this obviously is cultured meat, clean meat, lab manufactured meat that comes from animal cells but is slaughter free. Uh, rather than trying to convince everybody to go vegan for moral reasons, why not just replace the products they're already used to eating with those that taste the same and hopefully are cheaper and uh, just as convenient. So that's, I, I think, going to be a huge area. And I predict that once people are no longer participating in the slaughter-based meat system, Makes attitudes sense. about whether it's appropriate to kill animals are going to change as well because that cognitive dissonance will be removed. And one speaker that we'll hear from this weekend at the conference is Dr. Charu Chandrasekhar, who is running the Center for, Canadian Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods at the University of Windsor. Her goal, and the goal of many scientists around the world, is to replace the use of animals in scientific medical tests testing by developing alternatives that don't involve the use of animals. That could be in vitro tests, that could be an organ on a chip, uh, as cultured skin cells. There's all kinds of innovative approaches. Hi, Josh Brath, uh, full-time faculty at Georgian College in our community safety programs and a PhD candidate at Charles Stewart University out of New South Wales in Australia. I'm actually doing my doctorate in relation to wildlife enforcement practices and illegal wildlife trade. So prior to the podcast, there was a great deal of discussion relating to animal harm and cruelty and the question of the legitimate purpose test as well as economic factors. Um, if you look at the illegal wildlife enforcement and the illegal wildlife trade, one of the baseline factors associated with it relates to the economic factor. So based on that, what recommendations would you have to those who are working on the enforcement side to make sure that there's greater success in terms of the prosecution of cases? So um, the the... I, I'm not an expert on wildlife enforcement per se as a particular interest, but I am learning more and more uh, about enforcement as a problem. And the basic problems with enforcement is that most of the people on the enforcement lines don't really know 
about how the criminal justice system works. So that's true where it's a private entity, which is much less true in the wildlife situation. But I, I do believe, even in the wildlife situation, my experience has been that the people who are doing the enforcement, it's, it's, not, it's not that they have anything against animals. I just don't think they are people who really understand the harm or the cruelty to the animal as an aspect of what their job is. That was my understanding when I was in New Zealand, where wildlife enforcement officers are there for conservation, preservation, and to make sure that the hunting regulations are followed. And I think that's true in Alberta as well, where I live now. We may have a section in our Wildlife Act that says something animal cruelty related, like you can't do X to an animal. My view is that when the people go in on those things, what they're really trying to investigate is are they tagged properly? Are you hunting out of season? So to begin with, when you say, what would I do? I would actually try and make these enforcement agents have a cruelty or a, a, a welfare-based approach to begin with. And to be honest, I found that in almost every system. I mean, Camille can talk, I'm sure, at length about the CFIA. The CFIA inspects food areas, which is not hunting or wildlife, but I found the exact same problem. If you go talk to CFIA investigators, from what I've seen from the testimony in courts and in the court records, I'm not just speaking about anecdotes, their interest is about biosecurity. It's very rarely about what well, was the animal harmed in this. So in my view, if you want enforcement agents to actually have some meaningful impact on what's going on, to begin with, you've got to orient them in a direction where they actually care. And that's, uh, we're still a long way from that. Yeah. I just, just one little thing to add is that in BC, there's been a lot of discussion about wildlife enforcement in particular and some, some cases out there. Uh, one thing that was revealed through access to information legislation is that uh, most of BC's conservation officers are hunters themselves. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of our uh, Q&A on that happy note. Uh, and um, we are here. This is a special treat, Camille. Um, I have come up with something a little special for this very special show, which is really about, um, um, you know, celebrating what we've done. It's not quite an anniversary show. Camille doesn't even know we're doing this. We are getting to the part of the segment that is about heroes and zeros. And before we announce our heroes and zeros from this episode, I thought it would be fun to uh, engage our student audience, who I hope are listeners in the show. And I have compiled some heroes and zeros trivia from the 40 episodes leading up to today and I'm going to test all of you out there and my co-host Camille to see if they know about some of the things involved in trivia and just to see that I'm not you know curmudgeonly um, we have prizes we have brought some animal justice t-shirts which are for some of the successful answers to this so I'm going to ask the audience and I'm going to ask Camille about some questions is everybody ready all the first one's nice and easy yeah, get out there. Are you ready? Okay. We have done 40 episodes. How many times have we had no heroes and zeros? That's a question. You had your hand up first. Go. Two. Two. That is correct. <laughs> Congratulations. The first answer. Wow. Two episodes. Episode one and episode three, Camille. We did not have a heroes and zeros. All right. I would have up. failed that one. <laughs> All right. You ready? Here's a good one. I think Camille knows this, so let's see if someone in the audience knows this. Now, when I say hero and zero, keep in mind, if you listen, sometimes hero and zero is an entity, right? So it's like the government of Canada, right? So, so when I say person, I mean entity or person. doesn't really matter. I'll, I'm just going to do it. Okay. So, yeah, that's correct, correct, correct. Who is the only entity or person who has been both a hero and a zero? Yes, at the back. It is the government of Canada. It is not. I thought it was too, but it is not the government of Canada. Anybody else? I bet Camille knows. Yes. 
probably wrong on this one, but is it the Edmonton Police? It is not the Edmonton Police. No, they have not been Hero and Zero. They've only been Hero, believe it or not. This is, it's a good one. Camille knows. I, I just figured out who it is. I'm going to give you guys a chance. So I'm, I'm going to give you a hint. It's a dude. And it's, it's for a very interesting And reason. you may have heard yes. his name. Is it Bob? It is Bob Sopak. We get to honor him one last time. Bob Sopak has been a hero and a zero because he was a hero when he announced his retirement. Can we, can we just... <laughs> Let's just explain who he is. He was the most curmudgeonly anti-animal conservative member of parliament who's no longer running in this election. Thank God. But loves hunters, loves farmers, loves fishers. Doesn't love animals. I knew you'd love that one. And I knew Camille would figure that one out. By the way, you get to claim your t-shirts after the show. You ready for another trivia question? All right. Who has been, there are multiple answers to this one, who has been a zero more than once? There are three eligible answers for this, although one of them's a little bit tricky, but nonetheless. Yes, Katie. Alberta. Believe it or not, the province of Alberta has not been a zero twice. What? Nope. Shocking. Camille, can you guess any one of them? Because our, our listeners I, are stumped. Guess I can definitely, one. I think the government of Canada the has government. been a zero many, many <laughs> the times. Canadian government, no, only twice. Oh. Canadian government has been a zero twice for selling whales and for funding foie gras. That is true. So you got one. There are two others. Can anybody guess? One of them's tough because the person was named individually and part of a collective. Can you remember that one, Camille? No, that's wow. tough. You really have to know your pawn order trivia for that one. It's very recent, if that gives you a hint, Camille. The second time collectively was very recent, episode 37. Wow, I'm thinking. You're blanking, I'm eh? thinking. I mean, like Marineland comes to mind? It's not Marineland. The answer, believe it or not, is Lucky Luke Stables, who has been who has been Lucky Luke Stables in Quebec has been twice a zero, once individually and once as part of the Kalash industry. So it is Lucky Luke Stables, and nobody got the third one. Why well, stumped everybody? It's Bob Sopak again. Not only has he been a hero, he has been a zero twice. All right, fantastic. I should have known that. Okay, now leaving out, I, I tried to count um, um, the most. Heroes, the most heroes by jurisdiction. The answer is international because, like, we we call from so many. So leaving out international, just going to provinces or the federal, and federal counts for Canadian government or any federal agency. Which jurisdiction has the most heroes? It is actually a tie, and you can pick either one. Yes, at the back. Uh, province of British Columbia? It is not British Columbia as the most heroes. They've only been named a, a, a few times. No. And by the way, that counts for anybody who lives in that province. So it's not just the province of X. It's anybody, anybody. So Lucky Luke Stables would be two zeros for Quebec, right? Can anybody guess which jurisdiction has the most? Yes. Ontario? Ontario is a fairly safe guess. And it is true. They have five and a half heroes. Good for you. And which is the other? Can anybody guess? It might surprise you, but nonetheless true. Oh. Newfoundland? No, it is not Newfoundland. It is Alberta, believe it or not. Alberta has five and a half heroes. And if you're wondering why they're both five and a half, can Camille answer why they're both five and a half? There has been a split. Think about it. One, there was one hero where we named both a hero from Ontario and Alberta. Jeez, you've done far more research yeah, into our history than I have. <laughs> You forgot your politics, Camille. We, we named Nathaniel Erskine-Smith and Michelle Rempel as co-heroes for one episode. Oh, so that was go. probably when they did a press conference together with some other MPs in true. support of the whale bill. Now, much more interesting, 
is who's been who has the most zeros. This has been a, a long-running battle on heroes and zeros between Camille and I. Who has the most zeros? Which jurisdiction? Yes. Quebec. It is not Quebec. Surprisingly high, but it is not Quebec. Yes. BC. It is not BC. Also surprisingly high, although they're only in fourth. They have four. Yes. Manitoba. It is not also up there. You're listening because <laughs> SOPA counts for two alone, but they they only get four. Keep going. Anybody have an idea on the jurisdiction? Yes. Alberta. It is not Alberta, which is why I wanted to raise this, because I thought it was, because I was yeah. complaining for a long time. The, oh. Is it federal? It is not federal. Feds are only five times. The answer, believe it or not, way ahead is Ontario. Oh. <laughs> we've, named, we've named Ontario ten times as the most zeros, which is double anybody else. Well, I mean, we started the podcast a few months before the election of the current Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, so... That is true. Now, this is a tough one, but you just got to shout out numbers. Are you ready for this one, Camille? Okay. How many people at this conference who are appearing at this conference have been heroes? <laughs> oh. Go for a number. Oh, a number? I was just... It's I'm just... A it's a number. Uh, seven. Nope. Keep going if you want a t-shirt. Nine. Nope. Not there yet. <laughs> nope. Twenty-seven. Boy, no one even close. Oh, who said that? Six is the answer. Correct. It is six people, in, including including Jody Lazar, who is named a hero, and including Zach and myself. Somehow we got named heroes at some point. So so we got to six. Congratulations. And there are, are several others, of course. That is my Hero and Zero trivia, Camille. I went through all 40 episodes to find Hero and Zero. Congratulations. Wow. That way, now we've done the research, Camille. So when we come back at episode 100, we can do it all again and see. So that brings us, of course, to everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Woo! So we have a hero and a zero for today, and I, I apparently have to name the hero because uh, the hero, I mean, I already made the speech. The hero for this episode is my co-host, Camille, who has never been a hero. <laughs> All right, all right. Let's 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 keep it in perspective, okay? <laughs> um, there there are numerous reasons I could award Camille a hero, but we we, we are focusing specifically on um, we already awarded Jody a hero, so I won't go into all the wonderful things Jody did because we awarded her a hero for bringing this conference together. It would be unfair not to recognize uh, Camille Labchuk, who has done yeoman work in bringing this together. It was her vision, uh, uh, really at the outset, that said we need to do this. We did talk about this. We've talked about it for like ten years. Uh, I didn't get anything going so it was really uh, it was really Camille who brought all this together and said we need to make this happen so it's it's my great honor to name her the hero of this episode well I the honor is all mine thank you Peter thank you everyone <laughs> <laughs> So for every hero, there's a zero, Camille, and we're about to change the numbers on our, you know, zero tally. Who is our zero for today? Well, we, uh, I got off the plane yesterday, landed in Halifax, and immediately I got a text saying, watch this live stream press conference. It's crazy. And I tuned in to see Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and a couple of his ministers announcing that they're imposing the harshest imaginable penalties I've ever seen for trespass. So they're upping the game. They're making it a, an offense punishable by between ten and $200,000. Uh, 
uh, and prison time for uh, people who go on to farms and uh, occupy those farms. Now, this is something that's been happening more and more in Canada, but also internationally. Uh, this movement called Meet the Victims, liberation lockdowns. Activists are going onto farms and saying enough is enough. Uh, the public needs to know the conditions the animals are kept in, and we're here to say this, is, this has to end. Uh, Alberta doesn't like that very much. The animal advocates went to a turkey farm in southern Alberta about a month ago on Labor Day weekend and did a liberation lockdown. And it prompted uh, just outrage from people in the community and outrage from the Alberta government. So yesterday they threw around some very damaging rhetoric, calling people environmental extremists, uh, which fits with their whole pro-pipeline, anti-environmentalist narrative, and uh, you know said that these people were terrifying farmers and people in their communities and terrifying them in their own homes. So that's problematic. It's, it's also uh, apparent to me that we're probably getting some form of egg gag legislation in Canada because they said that they were going to make it an offense to mi misrepresent oneself to gain access to a facility, i.e. targeting undercover investigations where people are employees and film what they see and expose that to the public. Um, it also looks like there's going to be a special prosecutor against animal activists in Alberta. No special prosecutor for animal cruelty, believe it or not. So actually, we do have one. That's not fair. well, not full time, no, not full time, full time. She's coming tomorrow. So you can ask her. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, for all of that, Alberta deserves the zero this episode. Boo. 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 All right. OK, OK. Before all you uh, people get out there on your high horse, it, it seems to me, Camille, in fairness, that they just beat Ontario to the punch because it seems to me that Ontario is coming just around the corner any day now. And frankly, on another note, I think you've got this all wrong, Camille. I think in the spirit of the Bob Sopak hero, we should be calling Alberta the hero for providing us with plenty of litigation opportunities to come um, raise all these issues before the courts because the more prosecutions they have the more we will be able to fight against the unconstitutionality where that's appropriate and if they put in ag gag laws or we will fight in every other way that we can so I guess you know that's my positive yeah you know it's really not my job to advise the industry on that strategy but I, I got to say our job would be a lot more difficult if they weren't so clueless much of the time uh, you know you look at things they've pushed through the courts in the past like the Anita Krein's pig trial which was the biggest international animal rights event in I, I think 2017 uh, they've pushed all kinds of things where, as I think Katie Sykes put it earlier, they, they score a self-goal, uh, kicking the ball into their own net. So if they want to have this discussion and they want to make it a, a public conversation about what we do to animals on farms, we're ready. So that brings us, sadly, Camille, because it has been so much fun, to the end of our uh, special episode of Paw and Order. I want to thank everybody here at the Animal Law Conference in Halifax for uh, playing a part and bringing us some great questions. And as always, Camille, it is such a great pleasure to do this live with you. Um, for all the times I poke fun at Camille online, you all know it is... Uh, it is done out of uh, nothing more than admiration, respect, and love. And, and, and honestly, she, she needs to be pricked just a little here and there, okay? Before her ego right. gets so huge, we need to I was going to say something nice, but then you said that last part. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. 
You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash paw and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!